us then return to Ephesians, that chapter we read earlier, Ephesians chapter 1. We would choose verse 10 for our text this morning. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 10 for our text. Here we have the Apostle Paul saying that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. And we would seek the Lord's blessing as we would want to meditate upon this text in context. The title I'd like to give to the meditation is The Glorious Hope. The Glorious Hope. This is what this text is talking about. And the Apostle Paul would have the Ephesians to know this. And because the Word of God is alive, it is God's Word, God would have his people know this today. That in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. A glorious hope then is before the people of God. You don't need to be a university professor to realize that in the day that we live in, we are surrounded with despair and despondency. And there is so much depression around. That's in the world. We hear it on the media continually. But sadly, it can also be found in the church. When many people are despairing and despondent regarding the future. Now we live in the real world, as we keep on saying, and our feet is firmly fixed upon the earth. We realize that, humanly speaking, the Christian church in this city, in this nation, in the Western world, is not what we would like it to be. And therefore, maybe some of this despair and despondency is casting a shadow upon us, ourselves. We want to dispel that. This is not pie in the sky. This is not wishful thinking. This is the Word of God. And here the Apostle Paul is speaking to these young Christians. They would not be mature in age as far as their Christian profession was concerned. They would be at the most maybe a decade old in their profession. Paul wrote this letter from Rome. And we remind ourselves that here the Apostle Paul was in Rome and he was in prison. He was shackled. His life was in danger. We do believe that he was released after this, but he didn't know that when he wrote this letter. And if anyone should be despairing, it was the Apostle Paul, but not for him. 
He was inspired by the Holy Spirit, and he spoke this, wrote this glorious letter to the people of Ephesus that they might realize how rich they are in Christ. This is the essential message of the book of Ephesians. That these Christians, these poor Christians, these somewhat immature Christians, who have been surrounded with persecution and trials and troubles and tribulations, that they might recognize how wonderfully rich they are in spiritual things. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Here's what belongs to the Christian now. Not what we're waiting for. Now, the Christian has been blessed with all spiritual blessings. He has been chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Oh, many people buckle at election, but we will delight in it. And maybe to help us understand something of this mystery, and indeed it is a mystery, that God should choose a people for himself. But he does. And he tells us in the Bible, for our edification, for our comfort, and indeed to humble us. We might look at election like this, for instance. In one sense, and I stress in one sense, as far as God the Father was concerned, you were saved in eternity. Now, I'm not talking about eternal justification. No, no, no. We're not talking about that at all. But as far as God the Father was concerned, when you were chosen in eternity, you were, as far as he was concerned, saved. And when the Lord Jesus Christ came, as far as he is concerned, his people were saved when he died for them. When he cried out, it is finished, as far as his work was concerned, the Christian was saved. Why was he saved? He was saved because his sins were forgiven. His sins were made atonement for. And as far as God the Holy Spirit is concerned, the Christian was saved when the work of Christ was applied to you personally in time according to your own Christian experience. That moment when you believed, that moment when the eyes of your understanding were opened up, when you recognized you were a hell-deserving sinner and you were lost and you're perished, perishing and you saw something of Christ and you knew that he was the Savior, and the work of Christ was applied to you that time, as far as God the Holy Spirit was concerned, you were saved then. What a glorious, what a wonderful spiritual blessing this is, friend. We can face anything when we know this. And this is what the Apostle Paul wants to impress upon these poor Ephesian Christians. This glorious, wonderful spiritual blessing that is theirs. And more than that, he talks about adoption. Having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ. Oh, to be brought into the family of God. To be able to say, God is my Father. 
Not just my creator, but my father. Oh, is this not wonderful? Is this not glorious? This is beyond our wildest expectations, is it not? And here, friends, he wants the Christians to realize how rich they are. We hear of people who have full bank balances, more money than they can spend, and yet they don't spend it. They live like paupers. And when they die, when they go into eternity, and everything's revealed, and people are amazed. Why? She had so much money, and she lived like a pauper. He had so much, yet he froze in his home. Why? Because he wouldn't spend his money. He didn't realize, or use, or capitalize with the great wealth that they had. This could be you, Christian, this morning. You have been blessed. Blessed with tremendous spiritual blessings. They're yours in Christ. Christ by his life and death and resurrection and his continual intercession at God's right hand has secured these things for every single Christian. Everyone. No exception. But the Apostle Paul then goes on in our text to tell us that there's going to be more to come. We're talking now, or I have been talking now, about things that Christians literally possess, whether they realize it or not, whether they live in the light of it or not. But he's talking here in our text about something that is Yet to come, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, God is eternal, of course. God's not bound by time. We are in time. He's not in time. He is from everlasting to everlasting. But yet he chooses to work in time. And the Bible talks a lot about times. Let me quote one or two verses from the scriptures to help us to realize, and I want to labor this part and this point in order that we might build upon the foundation of it. Because, Christian, you must realize that your salvation was not an afterthought, it was not by coincidence. It was by the design and the purpose of Almighty God according to his eternal decree. And part of that eternal decree is that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ. Tremendous gathering together of things in heaven and things on earth under one head. Who is that head? The Lord Jesus Christ. He mentions this again. Somewhat in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 7. He tells them after outlining. After outlining their former lives. How they were dead in trespasses and sins. He goes on to tell them. That in the ages to come. He might show the exceeding riches of his grace. 
in his kindness towards us through Christ Jesus. God has manifested his grace and his kindness to us even now, but there's more to come. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, when the Apostle Paul is reminding the Christians in Corinth of what happened to those who came out of Egypt and how their carcasses fell in the wilderness. In other words, how they died because of unbelief and they didn't enter into the promised land. And the Apostle Paul was asking them, the, the Christians at Corinth, to look at the example of those who had come out of Egypt and how they fell because of unbelief and they didn't enter into the promised land. And he says to them, Now all these things happened unto them for in samples, and they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. It was end times he's talking about. And we know, as we have said on other occasions, since ever the Messiah has come, we are in, in some sense, end times. God, we know, exists out of time. But he works in time. And in the dispensation of the fullness of times, there's going to come a time when the times are fulfilled completely and utterly. This is what he's talking about. Again, Luke in his gospel talking about the time when Jesus Christ will return. We hear the scoffers laughing and we hear them pouring scorn and contempt upon the fact that the Bible tells us Jesus will return. Where is his coming, they say. Well, we say to them, his coming will come when he's ready. And Paul, uh, Luke, in Luke chapter 21, verse 24, he says, Until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. God is working in time. And there's going to come a time when the times of the Gentiles will be complete. Then will be the end. Acts chapter 1. Jesus was about to leave and go back into heaven. The disciples were still somewhat unclear regarding the kingdom of God. They believed that Jesus, the Messiah, would have a, a literal kingdom. And they were asking him, when will this happen? When will, when will the, the kingdom be restored to Israel? I think that's what the words they used. And he said unto them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons. God knows the times. God knows the seasons. You're not to be taken up with these things. You have work to do. And as the angel said to them later on, Why stand ye gazing? This same Jesus shall return in like manner.
Again in Acts. In Acts chapter 3 verse 21. Whom the heaven must receive until the times of restitution of all things. Talking about Christ has to remain in heaven until everything's in place. And at that appropriate time, he will return. There's no doubt about it. We have to be patient. We have to wait. We don't know these things. But God does. There's a brief then look at some scriptures about time and the fullness of time. Well, this is what this is talking about here. That in the dispensation of the fullness of times. All the things that God has put into the great plan of redemption. And the more you look at the plan of redemption, the more we are amazed. But all of these elements, all of these things that are happening will come to a climax. It will be the dispensation of the fullness of times. That's what's awaiting the Christian. That's what's awaiting this world. A time when every element, every part of the plan of redemption shall actually be fulfilled. The dispensation of the fullness of times. And what are we to find then that will happen at the end? When the plan all elements of this great plan has borne fruit and come to fruition, just as God has decreed it in eternity. It has come to pass in time. What does this verse speak of then? Well, it speaks of universal harmony. Universal harmony. He might gather together in one all things in Christ. Before we look at it, we must ask, was there ever a time like this? Was there ever a time like this? When there was universal harmony? We're inclined to think not. In ages past, when there were no angels, and when there were no humans, when it was only the triune God, then there was perfect unity and harmony, blessedness, peace, felicity. This is something we cannot really comprehend. But there was a time in eternity when it was just the triune God. And therefore, at that time, there was complete and utter harmony. There was a glorious, wonderful relationship between the three persons in the Trinity. But God, as he has decreed, decreed that angels should be created. They were created 
When were they created? A bit of doubt here. The Reformed scholars don't necessarily agree uh, with this. They don't necessarily come to the same opinion regarding uh, the creation of the angels. Some maintain they were created in the second day of creation. We know, for instance, that they were certainly created before man. Some maintain as they go to Job, and it talks there about the sons of God rejoicing at creation. And therefore they maintain that the angels were created before the heavens and the earth. It's difficult for us, we do not know. But when the angels were created, there was unity and harmony between the angels and the triune God. But how long did that last for? We cannot tell. Because the angels sinned. A third part fell. And two thirds were preserved. They couldn't sin. And then, of course, we have the creation of man. He was created on the sixth day. And God said after his creation, he looked upon it and it was all very good. But we're inclined to believe that when he said that, it was simply referring to the creation of the earth and the relationship between himself and man. Because the angels obviously sinned before the creation of man. And therefore, there was not complete universal harmony even when man was created. But all of this will be changed. All of this will be transformed. There will be universal Harmony between the triune God and all of redeemed mankind. That's what awaits the people of God that in the fullness, in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ. That's the glorious hope. The Christian shall be fully, finally, and eternally at one with the triune God. The Christian shall be at unity one with another. We know that today the professing Christian church is divided. We pray for unity. We should strive for unity. We should do all that we can to promote unity. And if we cannot have unity between various denominations, at least we should try to have unity between individual Christians. And unity is something to pursue, to labor for. But we realize we're living in a cursed world and we will not have absolute unity and harmony. But one day we will. One day this will happen in the dispensation of the fullness of times. That's what lies ahead for the Christian 
He'll not only be at harmony with his creator, he'll be at harmony with every other Christian who has been bought by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. But there is more. And this is what makes this unique. Both which are in heaven and which are on earth. Now he's not simply talking about there shall be unity and harmony between the church in heaven and the church on earth because they will be one at that time. He's talking about here when it talks about are in heaven. He is talking about unity and harmony with the angels. There, there shall be glorious unity and harmony between the triune God, the angels, and the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they shall all be under one head, even in him, Jesus Christ the Lord. That's the great hope that's before every Christian. That is the end, the goal of our salvation. There shall be complete and utter universal harmony. And it's all going to be brought about because of what Jesus Christ has done. He's the one who has created the angels. Now the angels are not the same as us. We know that Jesus says in the resurrection age, we shall be like the angels. And he meant that we will not reproduce in the resurrection age. That's what he means. But we will not be like the angels in the sense that we have the same nature as they have. They are different. We will still be human. And they will still be angels. But nevertheless, there shall be that unity. That one with the angels. And Christ is the one who has created them. We're told in Colossians, For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. When it talks there about thrones and dominions or principalities or powers, he is referring there to the various orders of the angels. That is the great end. And this was, would have been wonderful news for the Ephesians. We know that the Apostle Paul went to Ephesus and he spent some time there, but he left them. And then on his third missionary journey, which we find in Acts chapter 19, there he stayed for some considerable amount of time. And he was able to establish a real gospel church there. And because of what he undertook in Ephesus, the gospel was spread about all over Asia. And Paul knew considerable success. Many of the converts had been involved in idolatry. They would worship at the temple of Diana, and they had been involved in occult practices. And many of them showed the fact that they had truly been converted by taking their 
books on the, on the occult and burning them because they had received new life and they were now following the Lord Jesus Christ. And they had a difficult time. They were facing persecution and trials simply because they had become Christians and they had turned their backs on the idolatry and the immorality that was found in Ephesus. And to them, some of whom would have been rich, but many of them would have been slaves. The Roman Emperor survived and was run upon slave labor. And many of these poor Christians would have nothing. They would have no riches whatsoever as far as material riches are concerned. And therefore the Apostle Paul gives them this epistle that they might be reminded that although they might not have anything in this world or they gave up the things in this world to follow Christ, yet they were truly blessed and they were indeed rich. Not in temporal things necessarily, but in spiritual things. And that in the dispensation of the fullness of time, they were all going to be gathered together. They're separated brethren. They were going to gather together with the holy angels who had been preserved and the triune God. And they were all going to dwell in a, a new heaven and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. The apostle Peter tells us in Second Peter. That was the glorious hope that was before them. Well, friends, we want to ask ourselves this morning, do we know anything of this? Has the preacher been speaking over your head? Maybe you're saying, I don't understand this. Well, maybe the problem is not so much the preacher or the word. It may be your state. It may be that you're still dead in trespasses and sins. Here we have something, a truly magnificent and mighty doctrine. Paul is going past their initial Christian experience and he is taking them to the very goal, the very end of it. A unified creation where the triune God... Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Christian and the angelic host are all one together in this great and glorified new world. And maybe we know nothing about it. Or maybe we're not interested. Isn't that strange if we're not interested in this? You know, the angels are interested in the church of God. We looked at it, did we not, at First Peter? When we looked at First Peter, how the angels peer over and look at what's happening in the church because there they see the, what God has decreed coming to pass. And they are intimately concerned about the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Should not we be interested in these things? What awaits the people of God? How can we have our portion then? How can we have the spiritual riches 
that are outlined for us here in this epistle. I must be careful. I must not in any sense impress upon anybody here that when you become a Christian, you're going to be rich in temporal things. You know, people can distort your words. I want to make it abundantly clear. That's not what we're talking about here. Yes, you'll be rich, but not necessarily in spiritual, in physical things and temporal things. The Lord may choose to bless a Christian and give him monetary wealth. That happens. But it also happens to unbelievers. Many, many unbelievers are rich in the things of this world, but they know nothing of Christ. The riches I'm talking about and the riches that the Apostle Paul is talking about are spiritual riches. And they are for spiritual people. They are for Christians. They are those... It is for those who are born again by the Spirit of God. It's for them and for them alone. Paul is writing here to Christians. And we must discriminate. No matter how unpolitically correct it may be today to discriminate. The Scriptures do discriminate. And as someone has reminded me, Truth discriminates. And when we, when we go to court, for instance, we're told that we must tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And that's what we want. We want the truth because the truth will discriminate against error and falsehood. And this is what we find here. It was written... For Christians. Verse 7 for instance. In whom we have redemption. Through his blood. The forgiveness of sins. According to the riches of his grace. Everything friends. Is bound up. In the person. And in the work. Of the Lord Jesus. If we're to know anything of this. And we've only just touched upon it. If we're to know anything of the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, we must be in Christ. We must have him as our Lord and as our Savior. This is what happened to them. Verse 13, In whom ye also trusted after that ye heard the word of truth. It's when the gospel was proclaimed to the Ephesians, when they saw the foolishness of their, their idolatry, when they abandoned their occult practices, and when they embraced Christ as he was freely offered to them in the gospel, then these spiritual blessings became theirs. And these spiritual blessings are ours in Christ. Do we know them then? Or maybe I should go back or step back a bit and say, do we know him? Because if we don't know him, we'll not know these blessings. We'll not know the blessing of that security 
that our salvation does not depend upon my works, my efforts. The Christian salvation rests upon omnipotent God. Oh yes, we know we have to work out our salvation in fear and trembling. We know that. But nevertheless, we rest upon Almighty God. Thou hast an arm that's full of power. Our salvation, the Christian salvation, is rested upon God, upon what he has done, upon his Son. And we can only know these blessings to be in him. And Christian, you are to realize that your salvation was no afterthought. Not a hurriedly prepared response to a difficulty. Not a response to something unseen and unprepared and unplanned. It was all in the mind of God. I am the Lord, he says. I change not. Therefore, ye sons of Jacob... Are not consumed. That's our hope. That is the glorious hope that's before us. That we will share in this universal harmony. Something that we believe was never known before. Harmony between heaven and earth. Between God, angels, man. What a glorious hope.